We're continuing our series on the Minor Prophets, and I have the privilege of talking about the book of Amos, which is an absolute nightmare. I don't know if you've ever read Amos. It is not a comfortable read. In fact, it is a decidedly uncomfortable read, painful read. God, in his wisdom, got me to speak on it, and then yesterday I was doing a financial review for the Roderick family, owing to a number of extenuating circumstances, like my son choosing to get married. And so I was going through our finances. Yeah, Heather approves. Um, I was going through our finances, and of course, having just read the book of Amos, when you look at your finances, one of the easiest things to do is to say, oh, we could reduce our giving. You know, that would be an easy target. That's an easy way to kind of bring some more income in. But of course, you've been reading the book of Amos all week, and I've read it again and again and again during the week. And of course, you have that thought, and immediately your voice in your head goes, no, no, you will not reduce your giving, because the Lord loves a cheerful giver, and Amos makes clear we need to be thinking about our wealth, our resources, our time, our energy, and how we are caring for those less fortunate than us. So anyway, let's jump straight in with verse 1 of Amos and this beautiful picture I found of a shepherd. So, the words of Amos, one of the prophet, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. So this guy is a shepherd out in the fields looking after sheep. He also tends a fig grove. So he is not part of the upper classes. He is not part of the intelligentsia. He is not a person of power and influence. In fact, he's probably amongst the lowest of the low. People generally became shepherds working for those who owned the flocks, and it was generally the last choice when you were desperate. Because you have to just bear in mind what the conditions in the Middle East are like. Do you want to be on a hillside in scorching sun, in freezing cold? It wasn't the number one choice for kids leaving school. So the reality is, this guy is not a person of influence. So here, God gives him a vision. And in this vision, commands him to speak to, would you believe, the kings and the nations around them. So can you imagine that? You're a shepherd, and God gives you a message to go and speak, to prophesy to your nation, to the kings, to the powers that be. And in the book of Amos, it kicks off with a whole load of prophecies to the nations around Israel. But it kind of hones in on Israel and Judah, and in particular on Israel, as we'll see. So the kings at the time um, that he's talking to were Jeroboam II. Jeroboam I was the, the man who was partly responsible for the split between north and south. So this is Jeroboam II, and the king in Judah at the time was Uzziah. But it's Jeroboam II that we are going to concentrate on today. Now, when you're reading the Minor Prophets, one of the most important things you can do is have a look at what is going on in Kings and Chronicles. Because the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles give you the backdrop to what situation the prophet is speaking into. Because most of the prophets reference who was the king at the time. So all you have to do then is just Google that king. You'll find out which bit of Kings and which bit of Chronicles tells us a bit more of the background to these characters. So what we know in terms of background to the world Amos is living in, the world Amos is speaking in, is it was good times. They were doing really well. Both nations had won a number of major military victories. They'd been reclaiming the land from the nations around them that had stolen portions of their land. And it was a time of great wealth and prosperity, at least for some. 
as we'll see. And their fame and their power was growing. And so on the face of it, it looks like everything's going fine. And even as you read through Amos, what you see is, unlike a lot of the other books where the number one issue is them worshipping other gods, in Amos, the people are still, it would appear, on the face of it, going through the motions. They were worshipping, they were offering sacrifices to God, they were doing the kind of stuff, the tithes, the giving, that God had asked them to do. So, on the face of it, good times. Everything's going well, people are going through the motions in terms of worship and sacrifices what's not to like but we see in verse 2 God speaks through Amos the lion roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem and one commentator just says and God's answer to Israel is no 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 to all your nonsense and so in chapter 5 we read this I hate despise your religious festivals Your assemblies are a stench to me. That's a phrase I don't use enough. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have filled, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Very focal glasses are a nightmare. I can't work out whether to get closer or stand further back. I'm getting a headache standing here. Anyway, enough of my problems. So this is... The words of the Lord through Amos to the people of Israel condemning their religious services. It's properly harsh, isn't it? It sounds incredibly brutal and direct. I hate, I despise the stench of you. Get out of my sight. I don't want this. So on the face of it, we have good times. But through Amos, we have this withering critique of the state of the nation. So what is going on? What had gone wrong? Why is God so worked up about the actions of Israel? We read in 2 Kings, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was the one who split the kingdom. So he fell out with Rehoboam and led the, Israel, the tribes of Israel off to form a separate northern kingdom. And he is generally held up in the book of Kings as being the bad man. So generally the other kings are kind of measured by are they bad like him or were they good? But Jeroboam too clearly is followed in the steps of his namesake. So what are they doing that's winding God up so much? Well the first thing is to do with how proud and complacent they've become. So in Amos 6, it says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. So what effectively had happened is in their military prowess, in the growth of their army, in the growth of their territory, they'd got very self-reliant. They'd got to a point where they were a little bit 
do you know what, God? We don't need you. We've got our armies. We've got our fortresses. We've got all this wealth. It's good times. We don't need God. Now, those of you who were here when I was doing the series on uh, Saul and David, when we looked at the whole idea of the very security of Israel is totally dependent on their relationship with God. So actually, what we have here is a colossal lie. Israel thinking we are fine. We don't need God's help or protection. We can look after ourselves. And God says to them in Amos, you are kidding yourselves. Because God knows just to the north of Israel is the Assyrian Empire that was about to turn the world upside down. They literally swept everything in front of them and conquered the whole region. Except for Jerusalem. Because Hezekiah calls on the name of the Lord and the army turns around and leaves them. But the Assyrians completely wipe out Israel. So this pride and complacency, this sense of I'm all right, Jack, this sense of I don't really need God's help at the moment, I'm doing perfectly fine, thanks, is a bit of a lie. Flash forward to the 21st century. Those of you interested in economics, and of course I am, um, this is a graph of GDP. Now, if Tim Sunderland was here, he would tell you that GDP is not the best measure of a country's wealth or progress. That's a whole other argument. Let's, there's any number of charts I could have chosen. But what I'm trying to make the point here is we are living in a time of greater prosperity than at any other point in history. So even though, as we'll see, there are various things going on at the moment, up until 2019, things were pretty good. Good times. Probably the longest run without a serious pandemic, the longest run without any war in human history. That actually we were living in this beautiful moment. And I don't know about you, but did your thinking start to switch to this is the new reality? This is how things will be going forwards. Interest rates will always be low. <laughs> we will always be at peace. Actually, good times. And as I was reading Amos and looking at the critique of Israel, I suddenly started thinking, have I slipped into that good time mentality? Had I slipped into a little bit of everything's fine? Actually, God, my life is really comfortable. There's got the odd up or down, but actually there are no what you might call systemic shocks coming at me from the world that are going to knock me off my course. And had I actually slipped into a little bit of I don't need you, God. My life is pretty safe, pretty secure, pretty comfortable. But then, as we all know, a little thing called COVID came along. And the world changed. Or did it? Because I think as we came out of COVID, I think many of us had a little bit of a, whew, glad that's over, now we can get back to the way things were. But then, Ukraine happened. And so you're like, oh gosh, I thought things were starting to get better and now there's a war on our doorstep in Europe. Refugees from that war are arriving in our city, into the homes of people I know. And then in, we have all the, the, the living, price, living cost issues. We've got inflation, we've got electricity. Now, if you weren't depressed on arriving in church, you should be right now. <laughs> I've done my best. So the point is... We were feeling really complacent and smug, but now the world is rocking. The world is shaking. As I look ahead for the next five years, 
it's tri pretty tricky, isn't it? I was chatting to someone. Who'd have thought 10 years ago you would be debating whether to fix your electricity bill? That you would actually enter into a contract of a fixed electricity bill for three, four, five years because that would give you some sense of security. It's a very volatile time, isn't it? So when your world is shaking, what do you do? Do you double down on your self-reliance? Do you save more? Do you try and secure things for your family more? Do you try and fix your mortgage, fix your electricity bill, try and give yourself some sort of sense of economic stability looking forwards? Do you invest more in your pension? Or actually, when your world shakes, do you trust in God? Because this is the thing, as I read the news and as I look at what's going on in the world around me, it's very easy to get very anxious, to get stressed, to get concerned about what the future holds. But I have to stop and just remind myself, my life is not built on my economic success. My life is not built on career. My life is not built on the prosperity of the United Kingdom. My life is built on trusting in God. And that is a foundation that cannot be shaken. So when you read the news and when you start to feel stressed and when you start to feel concerned about what's going on around you, just remember your life is not in the hands of the British government. Your life is in the hands of God. And it is safe in his hands. Whatever the future holds, whatever ups and downs, what happens to you economically, whatever happens to you physically, your future is eternity with God and nothing can snatch you out of God's hands. Not interest rate rises, not inflation, not war in Ukraine. Those things cannot snatch you out of God's hands. So let's live with a little bit more confidence about the future. Because we are a people of hope. And a people whose trust is in the thing that can never be shaken. So Israel had got very complacent and proud. The second critique Amos has for them is to do with their neglect of the poor. And he is brutal in his description of the things that they are doing. So basically, I've just picked a selection of the readings. So according to Amos, the people of Israel at the moment have oppressed, trampled, enslaved, sold, robbed, and deprived the poor of justice. It's a full house of mistreatment of the poor. They have absolutely smashed it. If they went out of their way to particularly persecute the poor, they're doing a great job. Grade A+. Plus for Israel on oppression of the poor. And all the while that is happening, what are the wealthy doing? Well, the wealthy are lying on beds adorned with ivory and lounging on their couches. They're dining on choice lambs and fattened calves. They strum away on their harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. There's even a beautiful bit in it about wives demanding their husbands fetch them drinks. The story of my life. Um, anyway, so here's a little thing for you. I'll give you this free of charge. On the left, you can see a picture of a bottle of wine. Do you know what that size bottle of wine is called? It's called the Jeroboam. Why is it called the Jeroboam? It holds three liters. It's thought that the monks, the ones who discovered champagne because the church obviously always discovers the best stuff, they used to produce it, and in looking for a name for that particular size bottle, they thought about when was wine plentiful, and at this point in Jeroboam's reign, you get the impression there was plenty of wine. Thank you. You can have that for free next time someone asks you. If you're ever in a pub quiz, you can now bore the rest of your team with the origins of that word. So, 
We have this contrast between the poor being enslaved, downtrodden, trampled on, mistreated, and on the flip side, we have the wealthy having a wonderful time. Now, in the Old Testament in particular, there is a clear, clear instruction from God that if you want to follow me, one of the barometers I will use to assess how well you are doing in obeying my commands is your treatment of the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner in your midst. And so clearly, Amos is saying, you guys have lost sight of one of the most important things to God. And the phrase that's often used in the Old Testament to describe this is walking in the way of the Lord. So when Moses is on the side of the River Jordan before they cross into Israel to conquer the land, in the book of Deuteronomy, he does these massive speeches to remind Israel about who they are and what their mission is. And in that speech, he gives this kind of summary of the Ten Commandments. And then he says this. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him. And love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. You must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then he says... For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Two of the things that the people of Israel were accused of by Amos, accepting bribes and being, impar- and being partial to the wealthy. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. Amos accuses Israel of denying the poor justice. He shows love to the foreigners and they're living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners for you yourself were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and worship him and cling to him. So walking in the way of the Lord isn't about singing spiritual songs, offering the right sacrifices, attending the temple, coming to church on Sunday. Walking in the way of the Lord is partly described, measured by our attitude to the poor, the oppressed, and the needy around us. If we neglect that, God says, don't bother with the other stuff. Don't come to me with your songs and your your wonderful praises and your sacrifices if you are part of a system that oppresses the poor and you are neglecting them in your own life. Actually, it's that clear in Amos. So the challenge for all of us is that it's about each and every one of us when we're together and when we're apart... Where in our lives do we have a care and concern for those who are oppressed, those in need? Now, obviously, being part of Community Church, one of our things people know about us as a church is we are involved in the local community, that we care about people who are being oppressed, those who need support and help. So we run a number of things. We have the very wonderful Southmead Stars that Hannah's overseeing. We have uh, Bristol Brickers, Matt playing basketball in the park over in Doncaster Road. But we also have, you know, Food Bank, Life Recovery, Home for Group, a number of different things. Now, the thing is here, it's all very well for you to feel really chuffed that you're part of a church that does all these things. But that doesn't let us off the hook. Unfortunately, if only it was that simple. If only it was so simple that actually I'm a member of community church. Community church does all of this stuff. Therefore, I can go big tick. I am concerned for the poor because I'm part of a church that's doing all this stuff for the poor. I think that misses the point. I think there is a direct challenge to each and every one of us as individuals as well about how we are helping care for those less fortunate than us. 
And we are at a crisis point. In many of the groups that we are currently running, we don't have enough volunteers. There aren't enough of us doing this stuff. I called into the food bank. They're desperate for volunteers every Thursday afternoon. Now, I recognize that for many of us, daytime availability is a real issue. But if you are at all free during the day, there's a number of things that we desperately need help with because these projects are brilliant and making a huge difference in the lives of people who are struggling. But also, every year, this November, we'll be running the Single Parents Fair. And I would love it if every member of our church got involved somehow. Because that is just a massive demonstration to our community that we care and that we love them. And it's off the back of the relationships we make at that that we then do a lot of the other stuff that we do. But also, Kath and Craig are thinking about potentially taking a team out to hands at work next year. So as a church, we want to be concerned about those less fortunate than ourselves in other nations. So the question Amos is asking, I think, each of us personally, is how do I use the time, the possessions, the wealth God has blessed me with to serve the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner in our midst? That's walking in the way of the Lord. So if I want to seriously walk in the way of the Lord, then I need to be prepared to put my time, my energy, my possessions, my money, my life in line with that calling from God. And for some of us, it goes even further. Because one of the things Amos puts his finger on is something called systemic inequality. He says that the justice... So there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So the issue here is, it's not just about the fact there are poor people who aren't being helped. The fact is, when they cry out for help, the system is actually set up against them. That actually they are being deprived justice. So for some of us, it may well be part of our role, our leadership in our workplaces, wherever we find ourselves, that we can spot what is in effect a systemic problem and fight to change it. So I just got a little diagram for you that helps make this point. Because we often talk about the difference between equality and equity. But I want to go one step further. So inequality means that some people have more access to opportunities. Equality means that you give everyone the same access and the same tools to be able to access opportunities. Equity is where you actually skew things in favor of those who need extra help. So it's not an even distribution. You actually actively customize your interventions so that some people get more help than others because that's what they need to be able to access things. But justice turns the whole thing on its head. Because justice isn't about saying, how do we help everyone access a broken system? Justice says, we need to fix the system. And then the other things will flow from that. So for some of us, I think the challenge is in our workplaces, wherever we're finding ourselves, in our neighborhoods, our communities, maybe even sometimes in our families, there are systemic problems that we need to combat. But here's a word of warning. Sometimes Christians can get a little bit into the ideal of a Christian utopia. That we think because God's on our side, we can create on earth heaven. We can combat every inequality. We can fix every system. And effectively, we can turn everything around because God's on our side and that's what he wants us to do. A little bit of liberation theology there for you. The problem is this is a broken world. So the reality is I don't necessarily believe that as Christians, we can change the world to be perfect. That we can fix all the inequalities that we see. The challenge God gives us 
is to fight the good fight. So it's not about the result, it's about our efforts, our motives, our passions, desires, our work. Are we working to combat inequality? We may not see it changed in our lifetime. We may not see it changed at all. But God says it's not okay to pretend it isn't there. It's not okay to just put your hands up and say, oh, things will never change. God challenges us to be on the side of justice. And God's concept of justice is giving people what they deserve, what is right for them. So the question for us is where in our lives, our situations, do we see those inequalities and how can we join in with the good fight? So, in summary, what had gone wrong? Well, despite the fact that on the surface everything looked fine, we know because they were proud, complacent and mistreated the poor, God says to them, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me, away with the noise of your songs. I love that phrase, away with the noise of your songs. And effectively, what Amos is, is a warning to us that sometimes in church, we can drive a wedge between the spiritual and the physical. And we can say being spiritual is all about prayer and worship and going to conferences and having ministry and all that good stuff. Amos says to us, do you know what? The world doesn't work that way. That what you do in the physical world, what you're doing with your life, your money, your possessions, the material stuff of life, that matters as much as the songs, the prayers, the prophecies, the festivals, and all that good stuff. And in fact, don't come to me with that good stuff if you haven't got the material, the physical, and the stuff in your life right. That ultimately that is a form of worship God loves as well. Because that's the thing. We need to stop making a distinction between worship, being singing, and what we do with our lives. God wants all of your life. The spiritual, the physical, all that you have and all that you are. And the challenge to us is, are they aligned? Are they moving in the same direction? Are we walking in the way of the Lord? So Amos finishes by saying, God has given you a plumb line. Um, He says, this is what the Lord showed me. He was standing by a wall, true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. So a straight wall. So a plumb line is just a piece of string with a weight at the end that enables you to tell if something is straight. So he's saying to them that God's ways are that straight pun line. And if you don't follow or walk in God's ways, then you are going to build something that is wonky, something that's off. Your life will be off. So for us, this side of the cross, we also have that plumb line. We have Jesus. Jesus is the plumb line. Jesus, if you want to know what straight looks like, if you want to know how to live your life in a way that is walking in the way of the Lord... You look at Jesus and you say, actually, how would Jesus deal with that situation? What is Jesus doing in his life? What lessons can I learn from him? As I look at his example, how can I follow him? Because as I follow him, I will be walking in the way of the Lord and I will be walking straight in line with God's plumb line. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Amos. I thank you for the challenge that it is. And I just pray now for us, Lord. I pray you'd forgive us for where we've been proud or complacent, where, Lord, we are leaning on our own strength, where we are trying to create our own little secure bubble of financial prosperity or whatever it is, Lord. And, Lord, as this world rocks and shakes, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our trust in you once again. We're sorry when we've trusted in ourselves and the stuff around us, but we're coming back to you now, Lord, and saying, Lord, we repent, we turn around, 
and we're trusting in you for our future. That, Lord, you are the rock which can never be shaken. You are the one sure and certain thing in this life. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help each one of us this week when we read the news, when we have bad news, when things happen, Lord. I just pray that you would help us to know we are standing on solid ground. That we are in your hands and nothing can snatch us out of them. And then, Lord, as we live our lives in recognition of all you are and all you have done, as we seek to worship you, Lord, would we worship you with all that we are? That not just with our words or our songs or our music, but we would be willing to worship you with our time, our energy and our resources. That, Lord, each one of us here would find space in our lives for those in need, those who are less fortunate, those who are being oppressed, those who are struggling with injustice. And, Lord, in particular, for anyone here who... Maybe he's involved in an area of life, whether it's government or education or work or just working with benefits or wherever and however they find themselves, Lord, but they are aware of a systemic inequality, where they are aware of something being broken in the system around them. Lord, would you give us courage to speak up? Would you give us vision to see what could change and how to go about seeking that change? Because, Lord, we want to be people that fight injustice. Would you help us, Lord? But at all times and in all places, Lord, would you give us that sense of being a people of hope in an increasingly anxious world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.